Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Hello, this is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles. Thanks for listening. Garrett Miller is one of the people responsible for Finger Lake Cider House, just a few minutes outside of Ithaca, New York. Nestled in the narrow strip of land between the two largest Finger Lakes, Finger Lake Cider House is at the epicenter of the new cider renaissance in the Northeast US. Garrett's farm is using regenerative organic polyculture to produce organic fruit and veggies and is making some of the tastiest ciders and local farm to table food you can find. I've wanted to talk to Garrett for a while, not just because of the beautiful farming he's doing, but because Finger Lake Cider House is responsible for blowing my mind. I stumbled on them on a visit to the Finger Lakes to taste wine, and all I can say is that after trying their ciders, I forgot completely about fermented grapes and began seeking out the elixir that is possible when apples and pears are given the quality of attention they deserve. It was some of Garrett's work that convinced me that cider, good cider, is America's champagne. Garrett dropped out of high school to start farming, and he's been learning ever since. We leave dogma behind in this interview and really dig into some of the nuances and compromises and complications that are a reality in the world of agriculture. I'm very grateful to Garrett for his candid answers to some difficult questions. If there's a a theme to this episode, I'd sum it up as we have a lot to learn from farmers. We talk a lot about the understanding gap between those who are doing the farming and those who are consuming farm products. That is, everyone who isn't a farmer. Garrett says that they did things backwards because they started with the agricultural side of the farm rather than with the sales and marketing side of farming. I think I know what he means. There's a farming aphorism that says, sell before you sow. And it alludes to the need to have a market in mind as the first step to success as a farmer. It's easy to forget that farmers have to be salespeople in addition to being experts in a variety of skills that have nothing to do with sales if they want to be able to farm. And that's why I'd behoove everyone to go seek them out. You can help a farmer immensely by relieving them of some of their sales burden by doing the work that it takes to find them. Seek out farmers who are doing great farming and support them by buying their products. And maybe Finger Lake Cider House crew did start backwards, but I'd like to think by another perspective that starting with agriculture is where we should all start. And maybe, just maybe, they did it exactly right. Enjoy. Garrett, thanks so much for joining me. Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Adam. It's a a real pleasure. I want to start by saying you, your cidery, your cider house is what really opened my mind to the possibilities and potentials of cider in America. Honestly, I, it's, it was a few years back. I was with my mom on a little mother son trip in the Finger Lakes region and we were just cruising around. We love to just get lost on, you know, country roads. Not that you're off of a, out in the middle of nowhere country road. You're off the beautiful, what is it? 89. Yeah. That runs up the side of the lake there. And we just saw the sign and, I think it said something like organic cider and or something like that. And we just cruised in and discovered you. And it was the first time that I had cider, first of all, out of something besides a beer bottle shaped bottle. <laughs> and yeah. and it was the first time that I realized, oh, my gosh, there's like different varieties of cider specific apples and you can do all different styles from, you know, bone dry to full sweet and everything in between and and there's a whole palette just like just like with wine grapes where you have all different kinds of grapes that you can use to create your sparkling wine like i said you know if you're in champagne you've got three different varieties that you're doing and and then now just an unlimited i mean you can make sparkling from anything and it changes the flavor and anyway it just blew my mind and the quality of your cider was amazing as well it was like this was just unlike anything i'd ever had and i've been a cider lover lover ever since and it's opened my world so thank you for that (laughs) yeah that's super sweet to hear i I appreciate that that's that's um that yeah that makes (laughs) the struggle worth it i think that we we find that that's one thing we can help provide is some sort of that um aha moment for people with cider or sometimes with organic farming or farm to table food. Um, 
and that is what it's all about for us so that's very cool yeah glad that glad that and, happened I, yeah and I, I, you brought up those other aspects of what you're doing which are, are the other reasons that I'm, I'm i really admire what you're doing and i i just remember the first time i visited uh i was one of the things that i was like okay these guys have something going on was you had your young turkeys that were you know i'm sure being raised for thanksgiving um just you know in a little fenced in region under some of the the orchard trees there so i forget what's right outside the the tasting room there but you had them in the you know they were just in there foraging around in the grass and having a wonderful delightful day out in the sunshine and long grass and living amongst the the trees and then you know just visited recently just a couple weeks ago sorry i missed you when i was there actually i think we just happened to stop by when you had stepped out but um you know noticed also you have you're sort of interplanting uh and sort of doing a polyculture thing where you have asparagus growing between the peach trees and so i love that whole integrated thing it's you you guys are not just a a cider house you really are this farm to table i mean you know when we were there recently we're eating I can't even remember everything we ate, but you know, essentially all the ingredients were from there or from very local to there. Is that right? Do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about what you're, what everything that you're doing? Because there's so <laughs> much going on there. It is, it is, yeah. And we um, we don't really have a strong marketing arm, so it's, sometimes it's hard to tell the story of everything we're doing. We're, we're often just wrapped up in actually doing those things, um, and could probably spend more time telling people what what we are doing. Um, <laughs> well, hopefully but, this will be an opportunity. Yeah. So we, we started as a farm, um, or just as a, you know, a, a couple of young people, um, trying to figure out how to farm and probably 13 years ago and, and started out, um, doing a lot of different things with cropping, with vegetables, with small livestock, raising cattle, farming with horses for the better part of a decade, trying to figure out how to, how to make a living as a small farm. Um, so evolving from farming to cider making as we were planting apple trees and kind of making that evolution of how do you, what do you do with your uh, agricultural products once you produce them? What's, how do you have stability in bad agricultural years? So getting into the manufacturing side of making cider and now wine from there. Um, and then that rapidly turning into a whole um, hospitality education and learning curve for us. So having the farm open 362 days a year, um, so seven days a week, having um, tens of thousands of people come here, visit us a year and and try all the various things that we're making from agricultural products and including uh, a farm to table menu. Hard to, I, I struggle with whether or not it's called a restaurant at this point, but uh, it used to be <laughs> a little charcuterie board and now it's um, a, a serious food place seven days a week and um, so we have food element drink element we have um, people can now stay on the farm overnight people come do music shows and on and on so we're kind of doing it uh, almost backwards of the way um, people would recommend one start a business like this now where um, <laughs> we started with the agricultural side which is often the most uh, difficult and least financially rewarding and moving toward the sales side. Right. Well, what percentage, for example, in, in the restaurant, we'll call it a restaurant, um, restaurant slash tasting room of the ingredients come from right there on the property or within, you know, five miles from there? Yeah, that, that's a great question. That, so coming from the farming background or that being the, the initial inspiration to start the place where, we're pretty uh, pretty crazy about sourcing local food for the for the menu. Um, to the extent, I guess, the first year we started, it was 100% from our local Finger Lakes region, which was awesome, but became a little limiting when you wanted black pepper and olive oil. So we <laughs> loosened up a little bit, and the food has improved, I think, because of that. So um, <laughs> I haven't weighted or um, you know metriced it, but it's it's got to be above 90%. So all of the dairy that we use and cheeses and all of the meats and in fact all of the uh, grain and bread there's we're surrounded by some organic farms that have access to a local mill um, and local bakeries so they can turn organic local grains into 
baked goods. And so our, our menu is heavily focused on those things, um, breads and cheeses and meats and pickles and fruit, uh, because they, those are the things that organic farmers in this area are readily growing. So right. yeah, um, a lot, maybe <laughs> above 90%. So some, some oils, some spices might come from beyond the Finger Lakes, but yes, yeah, we do a staples little olive bowl, different. things like that. Things that we think are a nice touch to add. <laughs> gotcha. in. Yeah. <laughs> haven't figured out how to do like a greenhouse olive grove type situation Not there. Yeah. Yet. Yet. <laughs> um, I'm sure, I'm sure it's possible, but I, yeah. yeah, I would not want to attempt it. Um, so, and what, what got you started? Was it, cider that was your inspiration or was it just farming in general i mean was this whole whole farm part of the original vision or did it grow from cider or or, or did cider grow out of the farm vision how what, what came first yeah definitely cider grew out of the farm vision so and the farm vision oh, okay. kind of grew out of um I don't know, maybe having an, an environmental ethos of like, you know, loving wild areas and coming from that sort of do no harm background and then trying to figure out how do you, how do you do more than just no harm? How do you, how do you do actual good things? How do you uh, make things better? And yeah, thinking agriculture could be a good um, path toward that and just really enjoying agricultural lifestyle. So starting as a farm and then the farm, you know, um, the pathway was really figuring out what would do well on the specific site that we were on. So we started with a, a blank slate, a big open cornfield, um, which led to apples because we're we were just kind of excited about tree agriculture and from apples mm. cider and on and on every every year is just more decision making. You you guys are growing some uh, unexpected things. Like I I do you, are you growing turmeric? Uh, we have on and off over the last decade. Okay. This year no turmeric, but we are still growing ginger. We've probably grown ginger maybe yeah. ten times. Um, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, so a mix mixed cropping of, of sort of specialty vegetables, um, probably four or five different types of fruit with lots of variety. We try to do some, uh, keep livestock as part of the farm as an, a kind of important driver of, uh, fertility and energy into the farm and yeah, heavy focus on perennials. We're really into perennial agriculture. And what's your background? How did you get into this? Are you from that area? Are you <laughs> <laughs> yeah um my i have a uh someone recently asked me to write a a bio and that was challenging because i um <laughs> i started working on this when i was uh 22 uh, uh -huh. so that was like 13 years ago and so i haven't you know besides doing this this is like the sum total of my my working life i uh, <laughs> your experience is this <laughs> yeah pretty much that's what i wrote i was like this, this is pretty much all i've ever done uh, <laughs> I, well, so you're a true farmer in that sense, in the in the old school sense of yeah, yeah. Go, I, go I, had, on, um, sorry. I had uh, worked. I I actually uh, dropped out of high school and it was like um, rambled around and tried a bunch of different things and worked in the building trades a lot and agricultural work and trying to finding that that was really made sense to me and was something I wanted to get into. So um, that was the sort of the the underpinning of my early years and did that while we were building up the farm because we started the farm without uh, investment backing or anything and just costs are massive and have to kind of had to keep working two jobs for a better part of a decade to make it work. Um, and uh, surprisingly along the way, didn't realize that once we started, you know, had this desire to, to farm and do these uh, trades uh, that what we were really doing was starting a small business. And that's, um, that's been a huge learning curve that, we were getting into being uh, business owners, small business people, which is a crazy amount of new skills to learn. Right. Very different than agricultural production. Totally. The sales. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's common thread with people who fall in love with wine, winemaking, cider, cider making, <laughs> uh, you know, farming. Yeah. There's, you know, it's, yeah, we, we should try. That's a problem that seems like we could all join in figuring out how to solve like a, uh, a cooperative sales something. I think people are trying to solve that actually, but um, yeah, it seems like figuring out a way to allow farmers and cider makers and winemakers to, to focus on those things rather than try to be spread so thin, you know, you figure quality has to suffer somewhere. Often it's in sales where it's very important. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, the, would you recommend 
dropping out of high school to start a farm? <laughs> uh, um, for some people, yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, not right. for, not for most people, I think. Um, <laughs> but I do think that the educational landscape is changing for sure. And I, um, but I I yeah. found that finding mentors in life was a very powerful way for me to learn things. Was actually going and physically. Um, working in an industry or trade I was interested in and finding a person who was willing to be a, a guide versus more of the traditional, you know, uh, teacher student model. Right. So like the apprentice, uh, mentorship yeah. aspect. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that works well for me as well. Um, and, I mean, there's, there's only so much you can learn by yourself, right? It's, I mean, there's more yeah. now with the internet and YouTube and all of the information that, you know, is generously shared by people online um but it still still sometimes doesn't apply directly to what you're specifically working on um yeah and i i definitely recommend um spending more time getting mentored than i did getting started you know probably getting doing like four or five years of mentorship before jumping into a very uh, multi-generational long-term project was um more than i bargained for and i'm i'm sure people i mean I, that i think uh, as a first generation farmer, well, um, you know, there's a, a couple of generations skipped. I have, there's uh, like most folks, I guess we have a ton of farming in our lineage, but not in the last couple of generations. Um, right. I think it's sort of a tall order to get started. Um, the agricultural learning curve is the steepest one I've encountered. And that is really would benefit from more of that multi-generational passage of, of skills and knowledge and, um, particularly of regional knowledge. So I'd recommend yeah. people spend more time preparing, educating, um, apprenticing as long as one possibly can. Well, great. So you brought up a couple things that I wanted to dig into. You brought up uh, stability and bad years. And and maybe even before, I, I, you know, one of the things that I'm curious about when you when you are being a local farm to table sourcing, you know, all your staples from, you know, a very small region, very local region, hyper local, I think you call it. Um, what happens in March and February? What, you know, do you, do you have three things on the menu at that point? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, How does that, that that's a good point. <laughs> um, there's a, there's a little bit of a, uh, of a dearth in fresh food sometimes, um, which, <laughs> There's creative ways things. to work around. Uh, yeah, but that definitely, uh, what it, yeah, March is, is and, and and even April can be tough. Um, yeah. But we we focus on, you know, preserving food in the, the fresh season. So we'll do like um, frozen food and pickled food and uh, pestos and preserves and things like that and uh, cured meats. So yeah. I think the menu can, yeah, stays fresh. And we, we have um, high tunnels here on the farm. And so do a lot of other farmers in the area, these you know, plastic covered structures. So uh, there's only probably one month, maybe two of the year where there's not fresh salad greens in our climate. Um, so that makes a big difference. As long as there's something green on the plate, it, everything feels dynamic, I think. Yeah. So, well, let's talk about your climate a little bit. You're just about 10 minutes north of Ithaca, if, if I'm right, maybe 15. Yeah. Uh, along Lake Seneca. No, Cayuga. Yep, Cayuga. Yep. Okay. I always thought it was Cayuga, and then I started hearing locals say Cayuga. Yes, that's how, <laughs> that is how we pronounce it. It's like one, yeah, a blended weird word. <laughs> um, and so what's it like? I mean, you're kind of warm and sticky right now, I think, but generally you, you get some pretty wild winters, right? Um, what's it like climate wise there? What do you have to deal with? Yeah, it's, I, I feel like this is, um, I often liken it to like the Shire and, uh, middle earth. I think it's a, a pretty easy living, good place to be, uh, climactically. Oh, nice. Um, what 43 uh, degrees latitude it you know we're around a ton of fresh water probably seven percent of the world's fresh water i think is within uh, a short drive of here with the finger lakes and the great lakes um so it's and soils are decent so it's it's like a you know very sort of breadbasket area winters wow. are gray and uh, muddy and not too cold um you know between zero okay. and 32 degrees but lots of okay. lots of clouds were were known for being overcast for many months at a time in the winter. 
uh, hot, right. humid summers, volatile springs, and but, uh, <laughs> beautiful falls for ripening fruit, uh, and particularly apples and grapes. Lovely. And yeah. and so, speaking of those volatile springs, I you know you have a lovely Instagram channel. It's always very colourful and you know oh, cool. slice of gives a nice picture of a slice of life of what's happening. I've been following you guys for a while, and I remember you spraying molasses on peaches because <laughs> of a that late frost last year that was like crazy late. It was like a I don't yes. even know when it was a June frost almost or something. Um, do you what? Is molasses wet? Can you talk about that? <laughs> what are some of the things that you've learned and that you have to do to care for the, the yeah. orchards? Yeah, yeah. We um, we actually had an identical, uh, almost to the day, frost again in that same period where peaches were in full bloom, but the temperatures were just like, I think, 29 instead of 24 degrees. So um, we were out of the danger zone at that point. Um, wow. You know, the the depending on the the phenological stage of those tree buds and flower buds it's just like a, a couple degree difference between 10 percent kill and 90 percent kill of those buds so it's a uh, yeah it's wow. for every fruit grower i think anywhere where it freezes everyone is um has a little bit of a roller coaster ride during bloom time wow um but we're we're you know startup again and everything's low tech and our orchard's kind of small um so we don't have all the awesome fancy gear that is widely used for frost protection, like um, wind machines and sprinkler systems and helicopters and whatever crazy things people are able to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, our, you know, options are limited. I have friends who will spend time burning fires and stuff in the orchard and try to create uh, warmth and layers of smoke that are close to the ground. Um, we smudge pot tried, action. Like, yeah, when there's um, a couple of degrees that you're trying to protect against. Um, certain sprays might work in your favor. So that when you're talking about, you can yeah change the freezing point of water with um, sugar and the addition of fish as well. So we'll sometimes put fish in there or, um, and you know, this is when, when things are really close to frost. If it's really, really frosting, there's not a lot of options um, unless maybe you have like a sprinkler system to, to really protect things with water, which maybe is in our future. All right. Okay. Um, and then also not all of your eggs in one basket, I guess. Um, we have. Yeah, that was the other question. How do you have stability in those bad years where you might have a 90%, you know, loss? Yeah, that's a, that is a really a good question. And we're, we're probably diversified almost. We're, we're often finding that we're too diversified. Um, <laughs> but like a mix of perennials and annuals. So if your perennial spring bloom time isn't going well, um, annuals, you're still kind of holding those seeds in your hand and can wait to the, till the better times. Um, and animals are always a good balance to perennials. The animals are, are you know, robust to frost and all that sort of stuff. Uh, <laughs> right. The, right. the biggest probably balancer though, is the value added side and, and, um, in particular stable products like making cider and wine and other alcohols, uh, is, I think you know, developed as a, as a tradition all around the world, but I particularly hear people in Europe talking about it as sort of the, the ultimate even or out of bad agricultural years. When things are good, you can make a lot of stable products, wine, spirits, and you can, that can last many years through the inevitable bad year, which you should just count on coming. And hopefully it doesn't come too many times in a row. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so you, you so let's talk about your cider making. So you, you sort of adapted to farming by, by incorporating cider. And, and, and do you want to talk about what you're doing with cider? Like what's your philosophy and, and how you, you know, what, what kind of ciders you're making? Yeah. Um, so I guess the Finger Lakes is uh, just a, a fortunate place to find ourselves in for cider making. Uh, I think, I'm uh, originally from this area, so moving back, just you know, that was the impetus of it, of, of being here. But we're finding ourselves sort of in the, uh, maybe it's bold to say, but the epicenter of of sort of the cider revival in the U.S. And yeah. we're also just fortunately finding ourselves in an amazing cold climate wine region of the Finger Lakes. And yeah. so, sort of those factors combined um, have really influenced our cider making. We get a ton of mentorship from winemakers up and down our neighborhood here. 
so our cider style is a lot like a sparkling wine uh, facility or, or winemaking style with sort of an emphasis on champagne style production, uh, which we're now applying to grape wine as well as cider. So it's a very seasonal yeah. model. We use fresh fruit in the fall versus maybe a model where uh, apples are made or cider is made from a concentrate or apples held in cold storage year round, a little bit more like a, a brewery might produce cider. Uh, so yeah, a little more of a sparkling wine model that's seasonal. It, we use apples that are specifically for cider making as much as we can get our hands on those. And those apples mm -hmm. have short shelf life, not as short as grapes, but um, definitely a seasonal short life, a, a seasonally short life. So we need to process them in the fall, which looks a lot like that model of, of crushing fresh fruit in a, a short period of time and fermenting a lot all in a short period of time. And then working through blendings and bottlings all winter and spring and farming all summer. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, after discovering you and sort of having my eyes opened, I, I started saying that, you know, New York cider is our champagne as America's champagne um, mm, cool. in, the, in that <laughs> sense. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is. I mean, it's just the quality, the, I mean, everything about it. There's, I, I would, I would drink a really good New York cider nine times out of 10 over and the best champagne at this point, I think. Yeah. Just nice. when you have something good, <laughs> it, it really does blow your mind. It's I've, I've definitely had that sort of experience with New York cider. That's awesome. Um, yeah. And yeah. Would, yours was first. Yeah. <laughs> cool. I, I would uh, totally give a shout out to um, Eve cidery here in the finger lakes too. autumn and Ezra as people who mentored us getting started cider makers for the last 20 years and taught us how to get started in the, the traditional method production or champagne method production, uh, and have been doing that for decades and are, uh, are awesome at it. So thank you. Thank you, you for that. Guys. Yeah. I, I, um, I visited with them on our last trip and I hope to uh, be interviewing them soon as well. Yeah. They're, uh, uh, making some incredibly beautiful stuff and yeah like you said they're the ogs up there right <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, for sure. i love it yeah i love what they're doing thanks for that um, <laughs> i'm sure they'll appreciate that um so well let's talk about you you how much of your fruit do you get grow yourself yeah um certainly not as much as i would like it's it's <laughs> uh, probably our first vintage starting it was like 10 percent um, okay. and it is now still like 10%, uh, even though okay. we, we make, uh, 10 times the cider we did at, at first, um, <laughs> you start the, growing more apples. <laughs> yeah. We, you know, we, we use more and more apples as we produce more and more apples. Um, and the making and, and selling of cider and wine has scaled a lot faster for us than our ability to, uh, coherently grow organic fruit. Uh, it takes... You guys, the, is the is the whole farm certified organic? It is. Yep. Yep. All the animals and uh, ag production, not our value added production, but all the ag production. Right. Right. But you, yeah. So you guys are. Um, I mean, on the farm, the Good Life Farm. You know, and it, it's really beyond organic with because you're you, you're polyculturing. You're you know incorporating animals. You're doing a lot of more regenerative organic farming actually yeah I, I would i would describe it i mean you guys could probably even think about that certification um you know about that one the re regenerative organic certification yeah i've just i've been eyeing it okay. from a distance and um if yeah. i can handle a little more paperwork i will i am certainly considering <laughs> it we I, I love the ethos i love the idea of taking this work that people were doing in the 70s of sort of pioneering organic certification and not totally abandoning that word, but it does need to go deeper. It needs to go evolve into the next thing. And um, yeah. I think I think the regenerative organic certification is the best shot at that right now. So there's there's a fracturing of the organic movement. There's probably five um, sort of beyond organic certifications out there, and I think um, we'll have to see how it all shakes out. But holding on yeah. to the, holding on to that term partially, I think, is important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. 90% of your fruit then is coming from other farms. Do you, so let's talk about that. So that it, it must be hard to get uh 90% that much fruit. That's also certified organic. Is that right? Absolutely. Uh, basically impossible. Right. <laughs> so let's talk about that. Why you guys obviously have your own personal philosophy and, and ethos about how you want to farm and what you want to do with the world and the land. Um, how do you, 
how how do you wrap your heads around sort of giving money to other orchards who are not who don't have the same philosophy? Yeah, um, yeah, I think that is a, that is a good question. That is, and it, in in some sense, it does definitely feels like a compromise. Um, we, uh, yeah, I think I guess to back up organic orcharding in our climate, I, you described our climate as very forgiving and awesome in a lot of ways. And for growing organic fruit, it is an extremely difficult climate. It is um, a hot, humid summer climate, mm-hmm. and we have a ton of uh, fungal bacterial pest com- and pest complexes that uh, don't exist in some of the primary fruit growing regions of the world, including west of the Rockies. So it's uh, it it is it, that's why I guess New York is the second highest apple producing state. But um, you're you'd be hard pressed to find uh, organic orchards beyond the scale of a couple acres. Um, there's not many in the state, and most of them are selling fruit for the fresh market where they can make their value. There's not a lot of, um, uh, I would say there's zero organic growers that I know of that are selling cider fruit at the moment. Got it. Uh, and it's, a, you know, cause a long-term proposition too, with trees and, um, you know, shortest term, maybe seven years to producing a significant crop from the planting phase to yield phase, but maybe more like 10 years. So well, it's yeah. a long catch up game. Um, yeah. And, and just the, the learning curve for organics is, uh, super steep. I'm finding it's for apples. It's the horticulture, the most th- difficult thing I've ever encountered. And, um, what, why is that? I mean, what, what have you, what have yeah. What have you encountered along the way? Yeah. I think uh, similar to organic grape growing, um, they each seem to have that like similar level of difficulty in this region. That's why maybe I, I'm hard pressed to think of any certified organic wine grape production in our region. Um, mostly the the tools like the the i guess yeah hard to hard to find a place to start with that conversation but (laughs) well fungal pressures i imagine are the the biggest issue yeah yeah it's definitely fungal bacterial pressures and it's it's sort of this bigger picture question of um you with switching like being like quote unquote conventional versus uh capital o organic it's it's uh it's a lot more to it than just the swapping of inputs like so correct conventional inputs are are quite powerful in the way that they operate uh right they're either very good at totally killing all of the weeds or or ground cover in an area like glyphosate um or the um the pesticides and fungicides um are extremely powerful compared to the organic alternative. So if you're just swapping inputs and using the same mentality, it's a super steep uphill battle to to um, to have the same or even close to the same kind of result that you might get with. Uh, yeah, it seems like a recipe for failure, and yeah. sort of like reinforces this idea that you know organics is impossible or whatever if you approach it with that mentality. For sure. Um, yeah, and I think then that the alternate side of that is what are all the practices and and uh, approaches that you'll use that are in organics that will go in hand in hand with the the inputs the sort of fungicidal and pesticide sprays that are allowable on organics um, that are relatively weaker actors like how where um, the sort of cultural practices and learning curve for that is it's a lot more nuanced and it's uh, taking me personally a lot of time to, to get a handle on and a lot of growers I know it's it's sort of a, uh, a multi-generational project that we're just sort of wading our way through. Uh, yeah. The farther, I, I like the quote, it comes to mind all the time, is, is just that phrase of um, the farther from shore, the deeper the water. So the farther we get into <laughs> this organic orcharding, it's uh, fascinatingly complex in its depths. Right. Uh, why is that? I mean, let's, let's, Let's dig into that. I mean, and and I guess before you answer that question, I'm guessing that truth uh, is part of why you don't see that many people doing it because the commitment of time and energy and resources, uh, both you know, I, I'm I'm sure labor and and money, just straight out capital outlay, is a big part of that. Where you there's so much more hands on stuff that is necessary to make <laughs> to make it successful um is that true am i am i right to think that that there that's a deterrent for those who are growing apples yeah for sure and i think um yeah some of the most successful orchards i see around here 
um, are certainly a couple generations in. The farm might be 100 years old. The real estate might have been paid off 80 years ago. And there's all sorts of, you know, established buildings and practices and a family unit around it. So just it, like I, I think that layer can be understated enough of how supportive that is to productive ag as the the, the, the multi-generational component. Um, the lack of debt. <laughs> yeah. Like, for example, right now uh, we started maybe 12, 13 years ago, real estate in our area was very affordable at that time. It felt like it still feels that way, but it is, um, it's up probably 100 to 200% um, in the last decade. Uh, right. the, your ability to, per, your agricultural production ability for that landscape has not changed at all. Um, in fact, for most places it's gone down in the last 10 years as people keep conventionally farming it and soil keeps washing away. Um, right. But, and, and, and the cost of infrastructure related to buildings and equipment is those costs, input costs are going up faster than the ability to gain value from your agricultural crop. So the, the hurdle is getting a little bit steeper for the first generation farm. So I think that is particularly the perennial farm where the returns aren't anywhere in the near future. So I think that is a big deterrent to getting started. Gotcha. Um, and specifically, uh, so yeah, so the... Is that so? Let's go back to the 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 deeper the water, <laughs> the further yeah, from shore. Yeah, yeah. Um, what you know, where where has this taken you? Like, what what are give us give me like a, a sort of timeline description of of some complications and the spiraling of of maybe just even one aspect of what you've learned. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to see if I can give you some specifics. Um, yeah, it's a tough question. <laughs> I, th I think um, when we first started, um, did, yeah, definitely didn't know how how difficult apple growing would be. You know, looking to the natural landscape around here, apples uh, grow wildly in our hedgerows, and so asparagus grows in the ditches around here. So we thought we would model our agriculture off of mm. uh, what naturally wanted to do well here. Uh, some of our mentors kind of guided us in that direction. So. Um, you know, things dramatically change when you start putting a lot of genetically identical apples, like, you know, apples are all grafted typically and sort of right. are genetic, uh, genetically identical and you're, you're putting them in close proximity and you're creating this thing called an orchard, um, that is wildly different than a hedgerow. And so all sorts <laughs> of new problems start to crop up that are, um, you know, artificial conditions that you've created. And so, there's this dance of like figuring out how much to let a system be wild versus uh, managed and how much biodiversity can one let into an orchard while still having a productive financial plan for that orchard. Um, so we started out growing larger semi-dwarf trees. Um, we, um, I guess we have fewer of them now than we once did. I, uh, we, we've been planting trees pretty much every year over the last 10 years and have torn trees out along the way that we realized were were didn't establish well or maybe planted into a system that didn't make sense um we still mm -hmm. have some dead semi-dwarfs but are moving to dwarf tree production more um in order to have more nuanced horticultural management of those trees um we we've started out i guess in that sort of yeah that different spiraling learning curve uh, managing trees uh sort of in that idea of we're gonna we're going to swap input for input. And we just went to a pretty far end of the input swapping and wanted to just manage trees with as sort of benign substances as we could. So uh, Michael Phillips, who was on your podcast, has been an awesome mentor of ours and um, has some phenomenal results with his orcharding techniques and uh, spray applications of things like neem oils and karanja oils and uh, fish. Um, all sorts of really Clay, right yeah, yeah right really nuanced and nutritionally focused and sort of microbiology focused sprays we um uh had attempted to do the same thing early on and found out there was a lot more to that methodology than just uh inputting you know swapping inputs and that we had a ton of learning to do on the front of needing to be much better at, at observation and timing and really understanding mm -hmm. what phenological stage fruit was at or identifying nutritional deficiencies um, or understanding soil health. Like we couldn't just uh, instead of coating the trees with 
with uh, you know conventional sprays, um, coat them with neem oil, and get amazing results. You know that was a uh, <laughs> seems seems silly now, but um, a wake up call. And we've been sort of pivoting since then and deepening our education and going really deep down the the nutrition and microbiology rabbit hole has been uh, a, a rewarding pathway. So, yeah, I'm I'm always impressed by how much I didn't know a very short time ago, (laughs) if that makes any sense. Like, I I mean, so we have a little front yard vineyard here and just about the time that it became productive after like, so actually it's our, it's our second planting. So we planted all one type of grape and my approach to it was, or, you know, I, I, very hands off. So like I'm thinking organic is just doing very little realizing it's the opposite because I basically killed the vines by their fourth year. And so I had to rip those out, put in some new ones. Right around the time, you know, now I'm not making the same mistakes, but I'm making new mistakes. I'm realizing four years into this, this planting, <laughs> yeah, I realized I've planted them all. You know, I'm trying, I want to dry farm. Obviously we live in, you know, California, anywhere West of the, I think the continental divide at this point, people should be thinking about, <laughs> conserving water um so we're trying to dry farm and i've realized i planted on riparia glory rootstock which is you know evolved in river wet river basin <laughs> you know <laughs> vines that, uh, that grew along rivers and basically adapted to constantly wet soils and so dry farming they're shallow rooted you know they're they want a constantly moist thing they're basically they shouldn't even be sold in california at this point but you know i was that's probably why i got them you know because they were offloading these vines to home people instead of commercial growers. Right, right. Um, but, you know, if I'd known, I, I never would have planted on these. So it's like, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'll be able to, I'll be able to grow these. I mean, like I don't have to rip the vineyard out. The vines are healthy and everything, but I, you know, my ideals and the things I've learned have already completely revolutionized. I mean, at this point I probably wish I wouldn't even have planted vinifera. Um, mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, as you've gone along, I, I'm, it's amazing to me that those are the kinds of things, you know, just a, a year can make a massive difference. And the thing that you did last year, you can realize was a mistake. And, and then you start to wonder like, well, what am I, what mistakes am I making this year? Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. In, my, in my attempt to be, to do the right thing, to make the right decision. And I'm wondering if that plays into, you know, if we can maybe, the question that I'm leading up to is how that plays into the term organic and what that means to you and how you think about that. Yeah. Um, I think that's and, and how question. important, yeah. And how important that is, you know, given these kind of things. Yeah. Um, it is, it's definitely more of a gray zone for me than it once was. And I think you touched on a good part of it too, which is, um, that it often means, you know, or at least one starts out thinking it means, uh, doing a lot less, uh, and doing less harm, um, which is in part true, but it often involves being a much more engaged manager um, with more nuanced tools and requiring a lot more of the, the individual, I think. So that right. that is a serious, a serious challenge. And I think it, it is gray and it doesn't apply. Like it's not uh, the necessary standard for every everyone or every area, but I do think it is a, as a strong baseline, um, for as flawed as the organic standard is for, uh, the, you know, the capital O organic standard. Um, it is at least least a baseline. There are things that it definitely, uh, communicates about, um, what is not allowed in, uh, in that agricultural production or what you might be consuming. You can be confident that it is not including a number of substances that maybe are known to be harmful or that there is um, a constant push to increase soil health as part of that um, in, inspected standard, you know, it's cert, uh, inspected by third party. Um, so right. it, it holds a baseline, but it definitely is getting as most things, the more widely adopted, the more diluted those standards get. And often it's very, seems very bureaucratic and lots of lobbying efforts have push the standards downward. And so the, the, the kind of a, uh, the rise of things like regenerative organic um, seem to be uh, the obvious natural next steps where there's new focuses put on uh, as sort of time passes and, and, and new uh, 
concerns emerge. There's, you know, there's more focus on the people element of the system in regenerative organic, you know, taking care of agricultural workers and the climate element of organics is more focused in the regenerative standard. So really focusing on soil carbon and soil health overall and really writing that into the code. So I think it's um, that all those are in the right direction of things that maybe have been, were part of the original intent of organics, but got diluted from the system. And um, I think in, a, I guess, in addition to those standards, there, there is really no substitute for um, interacting with farmers or particularly the people who are, are your farmers or growing your food, but which is not always possible for people, but is, is the optimal, the ideal is knowing the people through whether it's either, you know, them personally, cause they live nearby or in the digital age, maybe they um, talk to you on podcasts or you can watch videos or they have a website or some sort of social media channel and you can really get a more nuanced handle on, on the agricultural work that they're doing. Cause it's not always as cut and dry as organic or not. Yeah. I, I, I think, um, Michael Pollan did a really good, uh, sort of description of, for example, the carbon footprint of, uh, of salad of like lettuce mm-hmm. greens. Um, like if mm-hmm. for somebody, you know, since, since we're in New York right now, you know, for somebody to have a, a, a Caesar salad in February in upstate New York, um, could be, you know, even if it's organic <laughs> could be like way worse for the <laughs> environment than anything else. Yeah, like, totally. You know, than eating like a locally non-organic, uh, whatever, you know, it could be grown because obviously you're not growing romaine lettuce in January in New York, unless you, I don't know, unless you have a really high tech greenhouse, I imagine. Um, yeah. and, and the, the cooling, like the, you know, I think he talked about, how these organic greens are picked uh, from the moment they're picked, they're refrigerated to like 34 degrees, you know, in storage facilities and then put in trucks that are refrigerated to 34 degrees and then, you know, all the way to stores that are kept, uh, you know, refrigerated to 34 degrees until you purchase them. And and that it it might cross 3000 miles before you eat it. And it's been refrigerated 34 degrees all along the way. And you, what, what caloric benefit do you get from that versus <laughs> what, you know, what was expended to get that to you? Um, yeah. Uh, it's just a really, you know, it, that's a really extreme example of some of those nuances when we're talking about organics, I guess, and w- really what is better for the environment, uh, you know, yeah, versus probably just eating just, coleslaw. Yeah, something local, something preserved. So, you know, even if it's not organically grown, could be a lot better for the world in, in the totality of, of all the equation because yeah. of those nuances. In our purchasing and, and uh, manufacturing and food process, you know, production, we're, we're definitely putting a heavy emphasis on the, the local element because there also is just sort of also that really immediate benefit to our local culture and economy and just having that long lasting, healthy, vibrant rural community of businesses, but some things we do are, are finding ourselves wanting to purchase farther afield, um, to get an organic version of something that, that might be produced closer by non-organic, um, just because yeah. we, we value or, you know, organic standards in the production of, of different crops. We know that some are more damaging to the landscape to not do organically. Um, in my own personal buying, yeah, I'm, I'm, I try to steer clear of some things where I, where I feel like there's a good chance like that uh, there's harm, uh, you know, the, the food might have negative health consequences. So I'll, I'll prefer uh, a organic version over a local version if I can't get something like that. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like the nuance involved requires you to do some research, right? Like you sort of have to know, okay, this is farmed conventionally, but I know that what they, the reason that it's, it wouldn't, get organic certification is just this one spray which is really a mm-hmm. very you know very minimal toxicity you know uh, equal to some organic sprays or whatever and and sometimes they don't even need to spray that if the conditions are good so it's like you know the best you know very little inputs versus this other thing 
that is highly intensive conventional farming with lots of whatever. Um, but that takes knowing the crops, knowing how they're farmed, knowing the specific, I mean, it's a lot of knowledge, right? That's, that's part of that, the deep, the deep water that we're talking about where yeah you got to know you got to you got to do the research and it's not just the label organic does not tell you the whole story um yeah or, or the lack to, of that label you have to have a, a a pretty high level of education almost like a master class to just buy food from the grocery store i feel like <laughs> i think you know podcasts like this are really valuable i think in that way too to where, where the the nuance is described but i and i think that there's lots of room for um, some sort of a deeper education for consumers to, to help them go through that decision-making, particularly from, you know, people who know that back end really well, that would be an awesome resource. Yeah. Um, there are, you know, I'm, I'm excited about some of the new things that are coming out for helping consumers make decisions in the grocery store around, uh, nutrition. Cause that often relates to, um, healthy agricultural process, pro, um, practices if uh say you know like the more nutrition in a crop oftentimes the the better the agricultural practices is not directly correlated but seems to be highly correlated right, um, right the the greater the soil health the more the more nutrition you get in the in the thing that you eat yeah is and that... it seems like there's some tools coming out to the consumer level where that will allow consumers in a grocery store to tell the difference between good nutritious carrots and sort of uh you know, bad carrots for lack of a better word, but uh, <laughs> in a couple of years, I think those sounds like those tools are coming to people. And I think that's going to be a game changer. That's going to allow daily decisions to support ag that uh, makes better tasting food, more nutritious food, uh, likely correlated to better, better soil and better earth care. I love that. Well, back to apples. Are you, is your influence since you've you guys have grown you're making more cider you probably had relationships with some of the people you're buying from yeah can you do you see your do you have any ability to sort of influence the way that they're farming do you try to do that do you does that is that a, a priority for you or or how's that play into your purchasing yeah i think it's something i wish we could do more of i uh it's uh Probably if we were, if, you know, if we were larger uh, of a larger buyer, maybe there would be more ability to influence. But at this point, not not a ton of ability to influence practices yeah. um, other than maybe influencing the timing of which so, someone harvests a crop, you know, based on our fermentation needs, whether they're going to harvest it really early or late or how much we care about size or, you know, we can, we do have a lower a much lower aesthetic standard, which really helps fruit growers to not feel as pressured to do as much uh, fungal biological sprays, particularly later in the summer. Um, so we can have some really seriously ugly fruit and, and um, are trying to pay people more money for higher quality fruit, which like would be, you know, higher bricks or more uh, dense fruit that maybe has better phenolics. And so if we pay people more for that fruit they are incentivized to to get that result more often which you know adding a bunch of nitrogen fertilizer and tons of irrigation and getting really large heavy apples isn't what we're excited to pay for i think it will slowly change toward maybe more uh nutrient dense super delicious uh highly fermentable fruits yeah yeah it sounds i mean it sounds like you're a little bit hampered if you want to make enough cider to meet it sounds like the demand you you're reliant on other growers it sounds like and yeah but unless you want to spend have a team of people foraging the forests of mm -hmm. new york <laughs> uh, which i know some people do that uh but that's you know that's i think limits what you can do right obviously as well um so just curious about what where where you where your mind is on all of this, where, where do you, how do you, what's your philosophical approach to this holistic view of what you're doing? Yeah. Um, I think in, in practical terms, we're, um, like we have another orchard planned for next year that we've been planning for the last two years. Uh, so we have another three acres going in, in 2022. Um, and aren't making plans beyond that. Our, our feeling is like plant these few acres, um, push the learning curve further, you know, get them to the point of fruiting. Um, 
understand all the, the mistakes that we'll inevitably make along the, the way and then repeat and do the process again um, <laughs> and try to like take one slow, solid step and avoid taking steps backwards as much as possible um, and sort of build that base that maybe other folks beyond us could carry forward. Like, you know, just take that long-term approach to uh, perennial crops and organic orcharding in this area. Um, hopefully continue to find other growers doing the same thing that we can support for by, by buying their fruit and working with changing, changing the paradigm for what, what is valuable fruit that we can buy, which might, you know, incentivize growers at least to a small degree to, to alter practices. Um, and at the same time, we're doing a whole bunch of that other diversified ag stuff that we think is really, um, really about beneficial than, than just kind of having a strictly apple based farm. We want to have a dynamic, uh, agriculture here and bring people to it so they can experience it. And, um, hopefully that makes ripples throughout the, the decades coming is, is the people visiting that are, uh, going on tours or we're chatting with directly and see if, um, that will, you know, trickle into their lives or the, the, the farms in their, their region. Yeah. It's, I mean, it sounds like if somebody wanted to, uh, start an organic orchard in upstate New York, you, they would have buyers at the very least. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I think, (laughs) and, and I love what you guys are doing. I mean, to a certain extent, I, I, uh, the way I feel at times is a bit overwhelmed. Um, you can't control the choices of, uh, of the farmers around you. You can't control the choices of any of the consumers around you. And, uh, you know, and it's a bit overwhelming when you see, you know, the impacts of, of the farming that we're doing and, and you we're seeing it and, and the impacts of the consumption that we're doing in general. And, and it's, you know, I, I always come back to like, you, you do what you can do. Like you can only, do what you can do and just make sure that what you're doing is as thoughtful and careful as it can be. Um, and, uh, it sounds like you guys are doing some that very much. So with, with the good life farm is that, that's the name of the farm, right? The good life farm. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. All right. And that's, uh, how, how big is your farm? How many acres are you guys on? Yeah. The, the farm definitely has room to grow, but it, it's, um, it's a 70 acre farm, but it is, um, you know, has about a third, a third of it's wooded, which we feel is also still like an important part of the, the landscape is to keep that part of the farm wooded and you know, rich with diversity. And also we, we um, have a lot of fun out there in the winter and can interact with the trees and yeah, uh, absolutely. firewood and building materials and cool stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah. So what, uh, and, and I can definitely recommend anybody cruising by uh, that area to to check you out and if you want some of the best local food farm to table food you know stop by the cidery <laughs> strange to say <laughs> um but not strange at all once you're there and you see it all happening it's it's a very cool thing what how can people learn more about you and you know get in touch and come taste and i mean what, what are what are all the ways that we can find out more and and taste yeah um Certainly visiting us is, is the, is the best way, but, um, you know, coming in to hang out in the Finger Lakes, there's a lot of good places to, to, to stay and amazing hikes and waterfalls to do, but, and wineries and cideries line in the beautiful landscape here. So that, that's the best way for sure is come physically be here and hang out on the farm. Um, but if you can't do that, um, uh, sign up for our newsletter. We, we chat a lot about what's going on here and what's on our mind uh, week to week on the newsletter and on the social media, um, probably particularly Instagram, uh, FLX cider house is the, the handle. And yeah, for people who live remotely, we love like the, our cider club is, is sort of our, our, a big focus of ours and some of the more meaningful interactions we have with people and the, the, the group of people we put the most of our focus on. So we have a, a cider club that ships all around the country and, we're trying to make that a more rich and rich experience for those folks. And they in turn have been making the little farm possible here. So it's a sort of our, our best exchange. Nice. I, I ordered uh, several of your ciders over the last, over the pandemic um, oh, kept sweet. me going, Yeah, <laughs> kept me, kept me, kept me sane. Um, I still have some, I, I, I'm curious how you feel about aging cider. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot, especially to be- since you're, 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because you're making that champagne style. So I'm curious, you know. Right. Yeah. I think we're finding that um, certain ciders do age and and, uh, do get better with time, Um, particularly ones that are made in that champagne style that can sit in tirage in that resting phase for a longer time where there's still yeast in the bottle and they're kind of um, gaining in texture and um, flavor. Uh, cider is lower in alcohol, you know, than wine by a fair bit, um, maybe 8%, maybe 9% um, on average for cider. So those few point differences between wine, it seems like um, things in the bottle maybe age faster or degrade faster, however you want to look at it, like acids and things will degrade a little faster over time. So we're finding certain, uh, like the, maybe the aging period is shorter, that certain products are not, um, not better after 10 years, but we're awesome after three. Um, we don't have enough years under our belt to, to know across the board, but we are finding that uh, a couple years in the bottle and tirage is really nice for a lot of those products. And if we put them into the bottle with a bunch of, um, a little bit higher on the acid side, we have a more balanced product coming out a couple years later, similar to that that uh, um, champagne methodology. Gotcha. Well, look, any parting words? I know I, I've I've asked some hard questions, and I know you you know this I put you on the spot as as somebody to talk about the complications with organic and some of the nuance and and difficulties and compromises that are just a re- reality for for those of us who are you know living in the real world. Um, but you know, I, I, and I want to thank you for that. Thank you for being open and honest about that. That's really, uh, important, I think to move this forward, to move everybody forward. And so thank you. Um, do you have any parting shots, any, any words of wisdom? <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I, hopefully I answered some of those questions, um, more directly enough. I feel like hopefully it wasn't too vague. I think it is a very gray, process and uh, is hard to know a lot about until you get really deep into the weeds and and get your hands on it um and so i think for people who aren't farming it's like the the best way is going to be to somehow find agricultural people to spend time with and interact with whether it's remotely online or in person because i think we're definitely still uh surviving day to day based on the work of agricultural people um and uh, I, I need to spend more time with them myself in life and, and uh, <laughs> should have spent more time with them prior to getting started with our own thing. And I think it just um, helps shed a lot of light on maybe why things are the way they are in the, the real physical world. Why are we in the, the environmental challenges we are? And why don't more people take up a certain pathway of farming? It makes a lot more sense once you get into the weeds. Yeah. And, and it is, I mean, I, I do want to acknowledge that it's, I've asked you to do something extremely difficult, which is to talk about uh, uncertainty and, you know, it, it, the gray areas. It's, I mean, the gray areas are inherently hard to talk about because <laughs> there's so much nuance and so much complexity to them. And it's especially hard to do it in an hour long interview. So yeah. <laughs> thank you again for that. Um, and yeah, I, do you guys, take interns there if somebody's uh, looking to offer blood sweat and tears to, in exchange for learning yeah i'm actually thinking about it for the first time next year yeah we we have a, a pretty large team now of, of probably 20 plus people and are uh starting to feel stable enough that we might actually be able to provide a, a good experience for someone like that that wants to do some seasonal work here okay so, so yeah so they should just sign up and get in touch and uh and and just again stay stay pay attention and see what happens you'll post something totally yeah and uh, do you do you have any uh questions you wish i had uh been more specific (laughs) about or gone into more no no i mean i I, like i said i i i mean this topic we could talk and talk and talk and and probably maybe maybe the the reality is we we could we could pick one very small thing and just do an hour on one very small aspect of this but i did want you to be able to talk about the whole picture of of what finger lake cider house is doing uh which i think is really beautiful work and and then you know also address these some of these compromises that are are a reality of this whole 
process of being a farmer and being a, a producer of, of things. And yeah, so it's tough. Uh, but maybe that means we need to have you come back. All in all, though, I think I think this was uh, I think this was great. So thank you. <laughs> Appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Thanks for reaching out. I'm happy to do it. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And if you'd like to support Finger Lake Cider House and the good work that they're doing at Good Life Farm, go visit. It's worth it. It's an amazing place. It's almost, it's definitely idyllic. It's almost paradisical. And you can get some of the best food in the Finger Lakes area as well as some of the best cider. Also, if you'd like to support this podcast, which we'd really appreciate, you can buy great wine made from organically grown grapes at centraliswine.com that's c-e-n-t-r-a-l-a-s wine.com that's our winery and we'd love to share it with you thanks